This podcast is brought to you by Benjamin, a workflow automation engine that allows advisors to focus on their clients rather than data management. Learn more at getbenjamin.com. On this episode of Bridging the Gap, I have the honor of speaking with a good friend of mine and an ATLian, Daniel Crosby. We talk about ATL, why it's such a great city, but Daniel is the Chief Behavioral Officer at Orion Advisor Solutions. He's a psychologist and a behavioral finance expert, an author, and he's someone who helps organizations understand the intersection of mind and markets. One of my favorite topics of understanding the differences and bringing them together. We started the conversation with some of the difficulties Daniel has faced when working with clients and overcoming the evolution of helping clients feel comfortable while speaking about money and data without scaring them. Something that is a, it's an art. It's an art to that. Daniel and I also dig into rewiring the human brain to accept tough conversations, helping our clients understand why they want to reach their specific goals and what we see in the future of technology to increase personalization within our client communications. This is one of those conversations you don't want to miss because Daniel has such a view into psychology and money and the future of where we're going that you're going to want to be on this boat. This was a fun conversation and I appreciate Daniel for joining me. So let's turn it over to Daniel Crosby. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Daniel Crosby, welcome to Bridging the Gap. How are you, my friend? Matt, good to be with you, man. I'm awesome. Dude, this is one of those conversations that I've been looking forward to for a long while. I've just congratulations on all your success with your book and just the career and everything. You've just been making strides and it's been fun to follow. And especially for a local Georgian, it's always fun to, to celebrate. So how's life been treating you? You've been busy staying on the road. I, we were just talking earlier. Y'all just got back from a trip to San Diego. How's everything going with the family and life in general? No, life's good, man. We, we were just in San Diego for a month. Absolutely incredible place. And the, you know the thing I love about travel is you you fall in love with a, a new place, have your really fond feelings for San Diego now, but you you sort of fall in love with with home all over again too. So it is actually great to be to be back in Atlanta. Big big treat to be back in the best city in America, in my opinion. I couldn't agree more. We could have a whole podcast on why Atlanta is great, and I bet you there's a lot of people out there that want to argue with us. But we could have like a really good debate, I think, with them. And we're doing we something could. similar. I, I think that it's amazing to be able to, to go back and stay away for two weeks or three weeks. And it lets you have a new fondness for, for where you live and in, in the city that you love. So I think that that's great. Tell me this, before we go on to what's on our minds for the real topic today, what's the two best things that you love about the city of Atlanta? Let's, let's love on Atlanta. Okay. I love on Atlanta. So I'm going to love on, I'm going to name three. Okay. I'm going to love on the weather. So everybody loves to roast Atlanta and call it hot Atlanta, which is true in July and August. But aside from places like Southern California, we get 10 months a year that are absolutely beautiful and you get all four seasons. So I actually think Atlanta is sort of slept on uh, in terms of great weather. The food scene is absolutely incredible. Not only do you have sort of this, this nouveau Southern cuisine that I absolutely love, but you've just got the melting pot that Atlanta is. Even here in the suburbs where I live, you have great food from all over the world. The food in Atlanta cannot be, cannot be beaten. And then perhaps most importantly is the people. The people in Atlanta, Atlanta has this, 
a reputation for being warm and and you know the joke is that it's the city too busy to hate and that's that's absolutely the truth like everyone is hustling everyone's working hard but they're doing it in a warm friendly engaging way atlanta is one of the best and i think most underappreciated cities around I could live wherever I want, and I chose Atlanta after a very thorough search of the whole country and have been super pleased with that. I love that. I think that you nailed three of the things. And I, I, you know, spending some time up in the Northeast, I love the Northeast, especially in the summer. The weather is incredible. But to your point about the people, there is a difference in people. There is a warmth in Atlanta that is different than all others. So I can agree with you. The only thing I have to call you out on is that you're not a Braves fan. I mean, you're a Cardinals guy. I mean, that's, I guess I got to. I got to let you have that, but it's okay. Well, it's okay. As, as the world champs, I guess you've got a few more months at least to, to let me have it. But I, I actually am a Braves fan and I've been getting, I've getting, getting flack from my fellow Cardinals fans because I was wearing a Braves hat through most of my California adventures. But the Braves are my second favorite team. Grew up as a kid going to see Dale Murphy play and – I remember as a kid wanting to get a Braves hat, wanting to get a tomahawk and stuff when we would go see Dale Murphy play. And my dad, who was a second generation Cardinals fan, was just like, absolutely not. Like this is, you know, you can like Dale Murphy, but this is not your team. You're not a Braves fan. So I do love the Braves, but I love the Cardinals more. It must be said. Hey, Cardinals fans are sports sports geeks, and I love it. They are they're sports finest enthusiasts from that standpoint. So let's get into this, man. I, I I love the research that you do on behavioral finance and psychology of the investor, and just psychology in general. And I want to dig into a lot of that. I'm really intrigued by the trend of behavioral finance in the industry. I'm intrigued by how do we help actually get this acted on for people to make better decisions. Like now the information is out there. How do we now take that next step? But I'm always curious, and I ask all my guests this, I'm always curious in the journey that got you to where you are, right? Now working with Orion and helping them on the behavioral finance side. But when you were 13 years old, I mean, what did you want to do? Were you just like, you know what? I want to go work with Eric Clark at Orion when I'm 13, right? What was your, what, what did you want to do at 13? And then tell me about your journey to where you are today. So when I was 13, I wanted to be the catcher for the Cardinals, but Yachty, um, <laughs> Yachty boxed me out pretty thoroughly there. And, uh, when I was a young adult, right? When I, when I went to college, my, my father is a financial advisor. He's still active. And I, I thought, oh, you know, my dad has a nice life. Seems like good work. I'm going to do that. Well, my freshman year of college, I fell in love with psychology courses that I was taking as part of my general education sort of prerequisite courses. And then after that, when I turned 19, I actually went and served a two-year mission for my church in the Philippines. So I spent two years out of college helping people get their lives on track, building churches and schools and teaching English and just kind of getting involved with the human race in a way that I hadn't been as a selfish punk kid. And that's when I just really fell in love with culture and people and values and came back from my time in, in Manila, which is where I was, and said, no, I've, I've got to do psychology now. So I finish a degree in psychology. I go three days after I get my bachelor's degree, I go on to start a PhD program. And I get through about three quarters of the PhD program and we get to the applied piece and when it came to the blocking and tackling of having 40 clients a week 
who were having the worst day of their life, I couldn't do it. I mean, it was just, it was just kind of too much for me. And we talk about empathy fatigue with advisors because we're in a field where that's a real thing. But, but sitting with 40 or 50 people a week who were in sort of acute distress as a 23-year-old young man, I did not have the resources <laughs> to, to sort of build a, you know, a wall, the appropriate wall uh, between myself and the people I was serving. And so I, I came back to my father and I was like, look, dad, I, I, I love the study of human behavior. I love thinking about why people do what they do, but I don't know that I need to do it in a medical setting. And he said, well, hey, there's a ton of psychology in the work that I do. And, you know, at the time I was like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, I mean, my dad's like a wirehouse financial advisor. I'm like, what, what do you know about psychology? And it put me on this path to my, my dad, you know, who's an advisor in a mid-sized town in Alabama, did not have the language to say, hey, look into the you know, field of behavioral economics, you know, 20 years ago. But it set me on a path to get exposed to behavioral economics, behavioral finance, and then fast forwarding to try and build a bridge between the brightest minds in the industry, the ivory tower folks, the people who are doing the Nobel Prize winning research, and people like my dad who live in a small town in Alabama and are, and are helping regular folks, they weren't getting the access to these great insights of these great minds. And so that's what I've tried to do with my career is, is build practical applied bridges between people that are smarter than me and, and advisors who are out serving folks every day. I think that's incredible. I, I've heard that story a lot with, because I mean, I think one of the most intriguing classes that I took in college was psychology. And I've heard that with a lot of people that go back and like, I'm going to dig into psychology. Once they get into having to sit across from people and, and dealing with that empathy fatigue, as you mentioned, it becomes difficult. I'm curious on I want to talk about empathy fatigue and how it relates to advisors and how advisors can help with that. Because I mean, we do as advisors always have to deal with the issues of our clients. They're expecting us to be that hard person, but we as humans are still going through the same issues that, they, that they're going through. And we don't have anybody really to talk with. I'm curious how you, you took that kind of empathy fatigue that you saw during your doctoral and that you didn't like, and how do you help advisors overcome such a, such a thing and a burden that they bear for their clients? Well, you make a great point. And I, I think the real danger with advisors is they, it, it's a problem of which they're unaware. So I hope I'm citing the right researchers on this. I know it was Brad Klontz. I believe it was Sonia Luter and a few other researchers uh, did some research after the great financial crisis, and they looked at the mental health of financial advisors who are in the trenches every day, and they found that the vast majority of them showed symptoms of major depressive disorder or anxiety disorders, and in a few cases, even post-traumatic stress. And so when you think about why that would be the case, and it was like, I'm going to forget the exact number, but it was very, very high. It was 80, 90% showed significant symptoms of, of depression and anxiety. And when you think about why that's the case and, and where we know advisors add value, the primary value add of an advisor, the, the book is now out on this, is being a behavioral coach and being a decisional guide and helping folks make great decisions and avoid bad decisions. 
And to do that, you get people in your office who are panicked, who are stressed, who have seen everything they've worked so hard for seemingly disappearing overnight. And you have to be a buffer between them and that bad decision. And that is inherently stressful. And you're doing that how many times a day, how many times a week for the average bear markets a year and a half, two years long. So, I mean, this is an enormously heavy thing. And, you know, I learned while researching my book, The Behavioral Investor, I looked at the brain scan research and the excitatory power of different ideas on our brains. And we get more excited and uh, accordingly sad or frustrated and upset about money than anything, more than sex, politics, religion, like all sort of the hot button stuff. Money is number one when it comes to just sort of its ability to, to confound and frustrate and excite us. And so the advisor has a real role in this. And I think at least with mental health practitioners, you know it's there, right? You, you know it's heavy. I don't know that every advisor understands how important it is to take care of themselves, to exercise, to eat well, to kind of keep all things in moderation, alcohol, caffeine, all these things as like a, a prerequisite of doing a good job. But it is. You know, that's so interesting because when I think about a lot of advisors, and, and this may be a stereotype that's unfair, and, and so I, I understand that. But you, know, you think about advisors, you know, they feel like they're Superman, right? Like they, because they know so much about their expertise and people come to them and need them. And the, the act of need, feeling needed, makes you feel worthy and, and can elevate your, your feeling of credibility. But I think that we always just point to the data and everything that we know. And I think that this goes to my question of what's led to the explosion of behavioral finance and psychology is that we've always just pointed to the data. This is what it says. This is what it does. But that flies over people's head and it's hard to behavioral coach them. And I, I, I think that that's the trend that it seems like you're trying to overcome. Like, what is the difficulty there? What have you seen in terms of the, the evolution? Because that's how advisors always were, was there's just data. This is what the numbers say. This is what you got to do. Let's just get over it and move on. But that's not what helps people get over that one issue of money because they need to feel comforted. They need to feel assured. And data doesn't really resonate with them all the time. Yeah, we could go a hundred directions with this. So one of the first things to understand is everything we ask clients to do, they are wired for backwards. Like everything we ask them to do, to be patient, to take risk, to be long-term is literally the opposite of how we were made. We were made for immediacy, you know, immediate pleasure, immediate gratification, rewards, we're wired for certainty, we're wired for immediacy, we're wired for action. So every single request an advisor makes of, of her clients is hard and it's 180 degrees of human nature. So that's the, the foundational piece is everything you're asking them to do is hard. Now you layer on top of that human frailty, you layer on top of it the fact that we forget 90% of what we hear in the first three days if it's not repeated and applied. So you teach your client about whatever, the way fixed income works once in a meeting, and then you see them six months, a year later, 
and you go, why are you freaking out about your bond allocation? Well, they forgot. You know, they don't remember that 10 minute thing you told them that is second nature to you. So education is sort of necessary, but not sufficient. And then third, we've got the knowing doing gap. And there's a million examples of this. My favorite example is that doctors and nurses smoke at a higher rate than the average, the, the general population. And you look at that and you go, why in the world? Like people who spend their whole lives dedicated to healing and, and making sure people are healthy, why would they take something like smoking and knowingly engage in something in the cases of nurses at about twice the clip of the, of the population? And it's because there's a giant gap between knowing the right thing to do and actually doing the right thing. And we all do it, right? We all eat stuff we know we shouldn't. Something like a quarter of people cheat on their spouses and not a single one of them is like, yeah, this is, this is great. Like, you know what I mean? Like we, we, we all this is what I should be doing right now. This is yeah. perfect. This is right on. This is exactly what I should be doing. And I mean, uh, you know, we all do it. We're, we're impatient parents. We overeat. We lie, cheat, steal. And there's just a monstrous gap between knowing the right thing to do and doing the right thing. You know, that, that touches on something that I'm really curious about, you know, the knowing doing, because like, I think that the, the explosion of behavioral finance and behavioral psychology and the way that people think and they act has been like a, it's been like a whole education explosion. We've got so much information on it now. We understand it, but I don't know if we're yet at that point to where we're actually making actual, like the actual changes, right? Because we know we should be doing something, but we still aren't doing the things that we know we should be doing. And so I, I guess my question, I have, it's a two-part question. And it's kind of loaded. So I, I apologize about that is what is the ultimate goal in your mind of the education and the focus on behavioral psychology and finance in this industry? And then two is how do we go about moving the needle, and maybe it's already been moved a little bit, which I think it has, but moving the needle even further on the act of getting people to do the right thing that they know they should be doing and rewiring the human brain. How do we rewire the... Here's the typical question. How do we rewire the human brain? <laughs> so to, to your first question, I think the, the simple answer is just uh, help people articulate their values and goals and live a life that's in, in, in accordance with those values and goals. You know, I think some elements, it's like behavioral finance is going to minimize irrationality or some sort of abstraction like that. I don't think that's the case. And, you know, I and others like me have sort of pushed back on this notion. A perfect example is, you know, a couple of years ago, I paid, paid my house off. That doesn't make any financial sense, right? Like in, in sort of the strictest terms, you could have gotten a 30-year mortgage for one and three quarters percent or something at the time I paid my house off. Uh, from a strict numerical sort of spreadsheet sense, there were better on spreadsheet applications of that money. But for me, I didn't care because what I value more than having the most toys or the most money is sleeping well at night. And I know myself to know that once my house is paid off, I'm able to take other risks and kind of leave my other money alone. So that's an example, I think, of where something can be sort of spreadsheet suboptimal, but behaviorally optimal. And so I mm -hmm. think we have to help our clients 
optimize for whatever the good life looks like to them. And for a lot of people, I mean, let's be honest, for a lot of people, that's going to be having more, saving more and investing more because we know there's a crisis of preparation in our country. So for a lot of people, that's what it looks like, but not for everyone. For some people, it's going to be helping them understand that that hoarding all this money is actually contrary to what they've what they want out of life and helping them be smarter about how to give it away or you know sort of bless the lives of other people and then wait what was the second question how do we rewire the, the human brain yeah the second the second yeah how do we rewire the human brain right right how do we do that yeah, yeah so i think what it's going to take is is a couple of things we need more embedded behavioral finance. I think this sort of first generation of, of behavioral finance has been people like me writing books that say, hey, like, here's what you should do. But we got a lot of diet books too, and we're still a pretty fat country. And I, you know, we got a lot of we got a lot of behavioral finance books, and we're still a, a country that makes horrible decisions with money. And so that's a start, sort of laying down the rules of the road is a, is a start, but people need just-in-time advice. People don't need to read a book like one of mine and then remember six months later, like, oh, Crosby said I should do this or don't do this. That'll never happen as much as I wish it would. What we need is tech platforms like we build at, our, at Orion, like you all build there, to have this just-in-time advice that at the point of decision says, okay, Matt, here's the implications for the decision you're about to make. What do you want to do? Here's a little nugget of education that's specific to you and this scenario because nobody's going to read my big, dumb, boring books and remember them over time uh, and sort of act like some sort of financial automaton that's always making the right call. It's more of taking, I mean, like the technology that we have, right? The advancements in technology, along with the advancements of understanding of behavioral finance and psychology should allow for us to start making those changes. But to your point, it's also not a matter of judging our success of pushing behavioral finance based off of the attitudes, like the doing changing. It's more of just uh, helping people better understand what their values are and just aligning to their values. So it's it's almost it's kind of, I mean it's more of that it seems than than the alternative than the former. Well, you know, there's so much work to be done, man. There's <laughs> there's there's so much work to be done and and Carl Richards and Michael Kitts have this sort of ongoing conversation about goals that's been then formative in my own thinking. And what they correctly state is if you ask the average person what their financial goals are, you're going to get something that's very generic on average. It's going to be a round number they plucked from the sky that has nothing to do with their life. It's going to probably have something to do with beating the market. And it's going to be highly mimetic, right? It's going to be based on sort of social stuff like, oh, my neighbor got a boat. So that that seems fun. Like, I want a boat. My neighbor got a second house. Like, sure, I want a lake house. So even the process of, you know, Merrill Lynch did a meta-analysis, so a study of all the studies around where advisors add value a few years ago. And the results were so fascinating to me because the old school stuff, stuff like asset allocation and product selection and, and tax management and things like that, it added value. It totally did. It added value though on sort of a 32 to 64 basis point universe when you looked at the new school stuff, stuff like goal optimization, 
was actually more additive than something like asset allocation and let how many tools do we have for helping people allocate assets? I mean, it's just endless, right? Like if you wanted an asset allocation framework, there's effectively everybody would give you one. But how many tools do we have for helping people think deeply, clarify their values, see how those values map to specific financial goals, and then putting like specific numbers around those goals? That's a much different animal. And people don't understand that it's actually more valuable than the other stuff. The, mm. the soft stuff is the hard stuff. And the tech scene isn't set up that way. You know, I, I think about when I think about values, right? Our whole country's always grown up in this idea of like, it's all about getting to that point. Become a CEO and you succeeded. You know, earn a million dollars and you've done well. Like wherever this BS came from, I, I don't know where it came from, but it, that's what everybody says that their goals are. But I think that, you know, when I think about values, it's like, what are your true values that should drive all of your decisions? And then how do you make investment decisions that align with those values? It's not necessarily just ESG. ESG is a part of it, but I think it's like taking one of the things. It's like, what do you value? You value honesty, you value family. Okay, so let's then now focus on what can we do to drive towards those values? But no advisor would really go through that. They'll just go saying like a goal of meeting like a metric. Do you see that evolution coming or is it always just going to be goals based in the mindset of, I guess it always has to get to like an end state, but I don't know if people really understand what their true values are of why they want that specific goal, like the second home or whatever it may be. Yeah. So something we're working on at Orion is helping create this universe of values and kind of going through this process of mapping them to goals and then financial goals. So when I think about my, one of my biggest values is, is freedom. You know, I just really, I really don't like being told what to do. I really like sort of pursuing my various intellectual curiosities and seeing where they lead. So for me, the reason I want money is not to buy a lake house, not to buy a boat. It's I want money to be able to say no to stuff that's not interesting to me. Mm. Now, left to my own devices, though, I'm just as fallible and mimetic and influenced by other people as the next person. And if I didn't really articulate that, I might buy the fancy car and sacrifice my freedom accordingly. I might take the CEO job which is the American dream in some respects. But if your number one goal is freedom, being a CEO in 99 cases out of 100 is going to be a limitation on your freedom. I mean, it's going to be a big job and you're going to be responsible for lots of people. And those folks eat first and you're going to lose a lot of freedom. So if offered a CEO job, like, should I take it? Probably not. But I think most people don't think through it they just keep striving for that, that reaching for that golden ring. And you know, Matt, we live in a country and a world even where, where money is sort of liquid happiness. It's, it's hard for us to get our arms around what makes life good and what makes life worth living. And so in the absence of that, I think people just count chips because that's easier to do. And it's so hard unless you're super intentional and you're always revisiting that conversation, you're going to go to places you don't want to go and you're going to look back on your life and go, that was misspent. And so I think yeah. advisors have a huge opportunity here to do a lot of good. 
I agree 100% with you, man. I think that there's such an opportunity there. And I think that everybody always reverts back to money, like you said, because it's easier to measure. And I think that that's the challenge for advisors right now. We've grown up in this industry that we measure our value to our clients based on the portfolios. That's how we measure it. So the question gets to is like, everybody's nodding their head and like, yeah, Daniel, like this makes a ton of sense. But now how do I charge on this? How do I show the value? Because my clients are going to measure, unless I go through this whole training mechanism with them to change their mentality of it, which takes a lot of time as well. They're just going to measure whether I'm doing for them or not based on how their assets are growing necessarily. So how do you think advisors can help to better communicate their value when they focus on values and goal, goal related to that side of it, as opposed to just the portfolio allocation, et cetera? So I think an advisor who's doing all the things we've talked about today and like doing them well, that's a qualitative shift. That's a qualitatively different experience than a transactional type broker type advisor. And so what we know from the research does not work is kind of all the marketing points, the industry specific marketing points about the value of behavioral coaching. Because mornings, I just had someone on my podcast, Samantha Lamas, who who did this research. And when they ask people, when they ask people what they value in an advisor, it is dead last. And it's not even close. It's like hand-holding behavioral coaching, emotion management. People do not view themselves as needing that. So these advisors who are enthusiastic about behavioral finance, and God bless them, they're, you know keeping me in business, right? These advisors who are enthusiastic about behavioral finance and kind of get excited about it and go, look, I'm going to help save you from yourself. No one thinks that they need saving. But, you know, having this conversation about goals and values and having a conversation about meaningful philanthropy and legacy and purpose, all of this is behavioral finance too, and people know they like it and they love it and they tell their friends about it. So we mm. need every piece of the behavioral finance world. I think historically, the, the trajectory of behavioral finance has, has followed the broader trajectory of psychology. We started, we didn't start with Freud, but for, for all intents and purposes, most people think we did. And Freud was all about, you know, downside. He was all about neuroses and depression and anxiety and, and sadness and, and dysfunction. And it's only in the last 30-ish years that we've gotten a positive psychology movement that says, why don't we talk about what makes people great? Why don't we study not only what makes people sad, but what makes people happy and what makes people great leaders? And behavioral finance, I think, is having a similar moment where we say, yes, we need to keep people from their worst impulses. We need to stop people from going to cash every time the market dips out a bit. That's, we do need that. Like That's an important piece of it. But that's not all. You know, A big piece of behavioral finance is helping people realize their potential and articulate their values and all this other stuff we're talking about. And I think that needs no selling. I think people are completely bought in on that. Yeah, I, I can agree with you there. I think that to me, as I sit here thinking about it, putting my hat, my advisor hat on, I'm like, gosh, I agree with everything Daniel's saying. But wow, is this a shift from how I've been running my book of business for a long period of time? And, you know, I then think back to I'm reading the book Deep Work by Cal Newport. And 
I think this is like one of those like deep work things that I need to put a ton of time and thought into, but my business is going, life is going, and there's a tough time to do that. I'm curious in your perspective, an advisor that's been doing this for a while and been doing it the old way, shifting to this new mentality, how do you suggest and help them make that transition and understand and, and move towards that over time, given just that things are speeding so fast in the world that we live in today? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. You know, one of the things that I like to emphasize for advisors who are trying to bring about behavioral change in their clients is incrementalism. And, you know, I like to say that a behavior in, in motion tends to stay in motion and that a behavior at rest tends to stay at rest. And so start wherever you are and do 10% more. You don't have to reconfigure your website and your whole offering and everything else. But just try and do a little research into how can you talk to your clients about happiness and money? Read a book, do a seminar for your clients about the, you know, the, the handful of ways that, that money can really buy happiness. Do a little research on values and how they're so much more enduring than, than goals and give some thought to your process about how you can infuse a deeper conversation around values into your conversation. Listen more. Think about time. We're, I, I, I assume you're a football guy living here in the great state of Georgia, but you know, think about time of possession, right? Think about time of possession in your early meetings with your clients and, and whether you're giving them adequate time to speak. I am pretty active on LinkedIn and I shared a study I read the other day on LinkedIn today. And it was, again, a brain scan study that found that, surprise, people like to talk about themselves. When people are telling stories about themselves, they're more sort of have more favorable attitudes than when they're talking about other people or when they're talking about objects or money. People want to talk about themselves. Are you giving them adequate time to do that? So wherever you are, start there, go five, 10% further, and don't think you have to reinvent everything. When, when you think about the future of this industry from your seat that you're in, and, and you get to see a lot of advisors working at Orion and, and the scope that they have there and just your conversations and your books that you've written, where does this industry go? I mean, you think about the last 30 years and what we were talking about, you, know, you didn't have access to information as quickly as you do today. You didn't have the technology advancements that we do today. It was all about, you know, I remember when my dad started our firm. He had to call Schwab to see what the portfolios were doing, right? He didn't know how the market did till the next day. The flow of information was slower. And, and then you think about how exponential growth and technology can make us go somewhere different. What does it look like five or 10 years in your mind, this industry as a whole from your seat? Yeah, I think there's going to be, I think a lot of what we've talked about today is going to come to pass. Like, I think it's going to be a kinder, gentler profession. I think it will be one that's more people focused and less product focused. And I think that we're going to get just in time resources to make that happen. I think you're going to be able to sort of educate clients at the, the, at the point of decision. You know, Betterment, the robo-advisor did some cool stuff with this. They were initially blasting out kind of like don't panic emails to all their clients whenever the market did X. You know, it's like, oh, the market whatever is off five or 10%. So we're going to send out these mass don't panic emails to our clients. Well, what they found was a big proportion of their clients were not panicked 
until they got the don't panic email. And they were like, I wasn't even paying attention. Like what, what am I not supposed to be panicking about? And so with that now, they're able to do more targeted stuff. So they see who's logging in frantically and checking their account every day. And then they send them a don't panic thing. So that's just one example of how technology can aid with personalization, which is, I think, the next big thing we're going to see. I think we're going to see enormously personalized portfolios, both from like an ESG, SRI's perspective, and also from a behavioral perspective. I think you're going to see portfolios that are handcrafted, bespoke portfolios to maximize your tendency to take the journey and sort of live through volatility. So I see a ton of personalization, both at the product level and at the advice level, and it gets me super excited. Yeah, I mean, I could see that just in the sense of based on how your your brain psychology thinks and your your portfolio would adjust automatically based off of that so that you trying to just level set the portfolio for you when you see it. I think that's super interesting. Well, Daniel, this I mean, we could talk about behavioral psychology, behavioral finance for so long, but I know you need to get back to kind of doing all the great things that you've done. You've written, heck, four books, I think now, Behavioral Investor, The Laws of Wealth, personal benchmark, integrating behavioral finance investment management, which I think was a New York Times bestseller, if I recall. And you're not that great. You wrote in 2012. I love that one. I picked that one up because that's what my wife tells me all the time. So uh, I picked that one up just to make sure I could get into her head. But you've written all these. Everybody can go and follow those. And I always, you know, I'm going to let you go, but I'm going to ask you these two questions. And the reason I mentioned your books is because I always like to learn from smart people. And the way that I like to learn from smart people is these conversations and also reading stuff that they're reading. And so outside of these four awesome books that you've written, what's one or two books that you think everybody should go out there and read if they haven't already? Yeah, so we'll do an industry one and a a non-industry one. The the industry one is Luann Lofton's book, Warren Buffett, Invest Like a Girl and You Should Too. So there's some great research around women being sort of the ultimate behavioral investors. And there's like a whole fascinating conversation to be had about why women best men in both retail and institutional contexts. But I think there's a lot we can learn from women with respect to being great behavioral investors. So Luann's book is just just wonderful. On the non-industry side, the best book ever written is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And it's just a great book about the triumph of purpose. And so for people who are interested in all sort of the values and goals stuff we've talked about today. Frankel's book is super short. It's like you could read it in an afternoon and it's all about the power of purpose to see us through a difficult time. I love that. Something that could be so powerful for all of us to kind of read, heck, any day of the week. The last question I ask is from Barron's, right? Barron's always asked their participants on their panels, you know, what's one piece of actionable advice to take away? So I'm always interested to ask my guests, What's one piece of actionable advice you think our listeners should take away from our conversation we had here today? Yeah, so we'll throw a curveball here. So I'll say go to go to therapy. So you know one of one of the things that I had to do as a, a nascent therapist was go to therapy, and it was one of the most valuable things that I've ever done. And so I think we as advisors, in, in some respects, we can only take our clients as far as we've taken ourselves. And so I think whether it be having your own advisor, which I think every advisor should have if you're 
preaching the gospel of behavioral finance, you should demonstrate that by having your own advisor. So get your own advisor if you're feeling timid. And if you're feeling brave, go to therapy, like figure out your own head. You know, so much of your life is figuring out what's going on in the minds of your clients. Get someone in your corner who can help figure out what's going on in your mind. And I, and I promise you'll be better for it. Uh, I, uh, I second that. I've been in therapy for, I mean, for a long, long time. And it makes me a better person and also a better advisor by knowing myself and being, being able to be vulnerable about my own tendencies. So I think that that is a huge, huge piece of advice. Daniel Crosby, super appreciate your time, man. This has been an honor to have you on our podcast here at Bridging the Gap. I continue to follow everything you're doing. I can't wait to continue that. I know that the listeners probably follow you, but if they don't for some odd reason, I don't know why, how can they follow you and maybe even get in touch with you as well? Yeah. So I have a podcast as well. It's called Standard Deviations and it's just a weekly look at money, mind, and meaning. So check that out. And the books are The Laws of Wealth and the Behavioral Investor. And I'm super active on Twitter and LinkedIn, Daniel Crosby, PhD on LinkedIn and at Daniel Crosby on Twitter. Awesome. Daniel Crosby, you are the man. Thank you so much. Best of luck and uh, look forward to being in touch with you soon. Thanks, man. Go Braves. Go Braves. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 